Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 443. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Packed show today. Tell you what's coming in. First up is Main Fiction, and it is Brazen Dreams by Matthew Ward, which was originally published in Grimdark Magazine number four. Then it's interview time. I did an interview with Viva Rutkin. Aviva works for, or writes for, New Scientist, and she wrote a great article on there. Map of the brain's word filing system could help us read minds. Whereabouts the brain stores certain words, like different colours, against, like, say, different anger words. A fascinating interview. Then, right at the end, I'm going to give you a little, we're going to give you a little treat. We've got a little teaser of a, a short story. Our good friend, or my good friend, and hopefully your good friend, Nicholas Cam, the voice the voice of an angel. <laughs> Where from? You know, from down south, anyways. He's done this, like, a, a short story. Not wrote it, but narrated it on Audible. And I've got the links over there and everything like that, so you can go and get this book. It is by S. Zane, and it is called 1KRV5. And we're going to give you, like, a little 15-minute teaser for that as well. So that's all coming into day show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Before all that as well, little, little, well, a nice big announcement as well. From next week for four weeks, we're going to be doing a Translations Month special. Jeremy's been there working behind the scenes and, you know, well done to Jeremy to kind of get this pulled off and sorted out. We're going to run for four weeks, we're going to run stories that were written in non-English language first, you know, and we've got one. From Russia, we've got one from Jap- Japan, French and Chinese. And since we're kicked off, we, we are an international podcast. And this is fantastic. I'm so pleased that Jeremy's kind of done this. Ch- took it off his own bat as well. That's what I'm kind of, you know what I mean? Just runs with something, an idea that he's got and b- pulls it off. And like I said, to have these stories that were kind of originally written in, you know, then that kind of native mother tongue is brilliant. Do you know what I mean? So, and you'll be able to listen to me butcher. Totally butcher the the writer's names. So that's starting next week for four weeks. So do you know? Hopefully you'll kind of you'll you'll stick with me and you'll kind of enjoy that month special of like a translations month special. So we'll get into the main fiction and like I say, it is Brazen Dreams by Matthew Ward and I mentioned before Grimdark Magazine number four. 
Big heads up to Grimdor, putting out some amazing work there. When young Matthew Ward wasn't reading of strange worlds in the works of C.S. Lewis Tolkien and Douglas Hill, he was watching Adventure and Mystery in Doctor Who and Richard Carpenter's excellent Robin of Sherwood series. In 2002, he joined Games Workshop and spent the next de- decade <laughs> character settings and stories for their Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000 universe. As well as for a successful series of licensed books set in the G.R. Tolkien Middle Earth. In 2014, Matthew embarked on an adventure to tell stories in a world of his own design. He firmly believes there's not enough magic in the world and writes to entertain everyone who feels the same way. He lives near Nottingham with his extremely patient wife. That's that we all need one of them, yes. And an extremely patient partner all over the place, yes. And three attention seeking cats. And this story is just marvellous, you know what I mean? And what better, Rob Matheny is going to narrate it. Rob is just, just, you, you'll you'll see, to be quite honest, you'll, you'll hear, should I say. Rob Matheny is a producer, narrator, voice actor, blogger, writer and podcaster from the land of food carts, microbrews, voodoo donuts, Portland, Oregon. As co-host of Grim Tidings podcast, Rob delivers a weekly dose of grim dark to the masses. His podcasting propagation doesn't stop there. Nay! He also assists and producer for Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing Podcast. Rob is a husband and father of four. Oh, ho, ho! He's got hashtag adult. Well, that, that, that's good. Hopefully you'll be a little kind of peace and quiet. He's a rabid, rabid book nerd, metalhead, geek culture enthusiast, skilled Wheel of Fortune player and social media fiend. And a lovely kind of narrator as well on top of all that. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Brazen Dreams by Matthew Ward. The vault door was a featureless slab of white stone. It ran floor to ceiling the suggestion of neither join nor crack in its pristine surface. There weren't even seams where it met the tunnel walls. In fact, Alita wouldn't have known it was a door at all, but for her companion's insistence. Pulling back from the control panel, she threw a glance in Fortane's direction, the weight of her air mask making the motion ungainly. The grav boots were worse. Every step felt like walking through molasses, but at least they hadn't needed to bother with full containment suits. He was running a gloved hand along the surface of the door, as if he could unlock its secrets by touch. Even with the air mask half-covering his thin, watchful face, he radiated quiet intensity. I think I can open it, Alita said, wincing at how tinny her voice sounded through the calm circuit. You're certain? Elida bit back a response that teetered between irreverence and exasperation. Fortane loved to pull her strings. Of course not, she said instead. I've never seen anything like this. Fortane raised an eyebrow. You remember when I recruited you? I recall you saying there wasn't a lock you couldn't open. How could she forget? She had been desperate to get out of the Camarella slums and had talked up her skills considerably. Of course, she hadn't known who or what Vortane was at that point. He'd just been a savior, cutting her loose from a term as an indentured factory worker. I wouldn't know about that. Just like you don't know about any of this? The comm channel static couldn't hide his wry amusement. When it comes to this forgotten age stuff, guesses are all I have. I can bridge the connection. I think it'll open the door, if it is a door. It's a door. But there's always the possibility it'll trigger something else instead. What sort of something else? Alita shrugged. An antiquated alarm? Defensive system? Emergency coolant venting? Could be anything. Fourteen seemed to consider for a moment. Well, who wants to live forever? Do you? I certainly don't. I'd get bored. A warbling chime cut across the comm channel. Grimacing at the sudden noise, Alita stabbed a button on her air mask's cheekpiece, and the sound cut out. That was the shuttle's proximity web, she said trying to sound surprised. So it was, said Vortane. His voice was calm, but he tapped at the ruby amulet hanging around his neck, just as he always did when unsettled. A drifting asteroid isn't a place for a chance meeting. Someone must have followed us. I must visit Bendik after we're done here and reacquaint him with the precepts of client confidentiality. Alita caught his tone and was glad it wasn't directed at her. Do we continue? Of course. It's at least a mile back to the surface, so we've a little time yet. Who knows, we might find something suitably welcoming inside. He smiled, leaving her in no doubt he knew exactly what was inside the vault. Arrogant devil, always confident he had the answers. She'd give a good deal to see him wrong-footed, but only under the proper circumstances. Understood. Reaching into the control panel, 
Alita pressed the end of her multi-tool across what she hoped was the correct circuit pairing. There was a sharp crack, and a shower of sparks pattered off her air mask's faceplate. There was no alarm, just a deep, mournful rumble. Turning, Alita saw that the face of the door was no longer smooth. A series of concentric circles had appeared in the stone. They twisted clockwise and counterclockwise, then irised outwards. Synth flame torch held high. Alita followed Vortain across the threshold. The crunch of gravel beneath her boots was replaced by the hollow thud of metal. Looking down, she saw brass floor tiles gleaming where her footsteps had scattered the accumulated dust of centuries. Swirling shapes were embossed in the faces of the tiles, and torch cast shadows pooled in the grooves. Deeper and deeper into the vault they went, until Alita could no longer see the entrance. There was just a patch of floor illuminated by her torch and the bobbling will-o'-wisps of Vortane's synth flame ahead of her. His stride was careful, unhurried. Apparently he didn't care that he had pursuers drawing closer all the time. Arrogance again, she decided. Probably he thought he'd be able to talk his way out of it. Take a look at this, he called, voice crackling across the calm channel. Vortane was standing next to a wall when she reached him. No, not a wall. Alita realized. A pane of filthy glass, framed in ornate brass. Similar panes stretched away to her left and right. Pressing her torch against the glass, she peered into the space beyond and stifled a gasp of horror. There was a man-like shape inside. He, if it was indeed a he, wore a tabard of plain black cloth over rigid metal armor. He stood hunched over, his spine arched upward. A cluster of cables protruded from his back and vanished in the darkness of the vault's ceiling. It was clear that the cables were the only thing holding the figure in place. Without them, he'd have slumped forward against the glass. Alita crouched, trying to glimpse his face. He had none, just a smooth white mask. She looked again, and realized what she'd first taken for armor was, in fact, his skin, an exoskeleton of riveted brass plating. Mechtrites! She peered into the next cell, and saw another figure identical to the first. Why are there mechtrites here? Why not? asked Fortane. Did you really think they were just for serving drinks? He tapped on the glass. No, they had to come from somewhere. Those we're used to were simply left after the old war. I've been searching for a place like this for a long time. Alita wanted to look away from the mechtrite, but found that she couldn't. The sight made her skin crawl, but she found it fascinating all the same. When she'd been a young girl in Camarellis, a troop of mummers had strayed from beyond the gleaming inner city towers. They'd only managed a single performance before one of their numbers was stabbed and the others robbed blind. But she still remembered the mannequin they'd brought with them, great gangling things taller than a man, manipulated from above by a web of strings. The similarity was striking. Lost as she was in bittersweet recollection, it took a moment for Vortane's words to register. What do you mean? she asked. What, old war? There was no response. Alita turned to see his torch bobbing away to her left. Presumptuous sod. Three years together, and still he couldn't bear to share his secrets. In the beginning, she thought he didn't trust his gutter-born protege. Now she was convinced he simply couldn't bring himself to shed his veil of mystery, not even for a minute. She supposed it was wise. After all, it wouldn't do for folk to learn that the great and powerful Vortane, spymaster of Clan Balanus, was a fraud. Oh, he was good at fettering out secrets. She'd give him that. Whispers and rumors were Vortane's weapons, and she'd seen him wield them well. The Camarellus lawkeepers had spent five years trying to bring down the Dockside gangs, but had never found evidence to convict the headman. When the clan finally sent Vortane in, he'd managed it in five days. Nobles were no safer than Gutterborn. He'd broken Lord Adelan by uttering a single line from a low-town address. To this day, Alita didn't know its significance. A mistress? An undesirable business partner? Vortane had said afterwards that he hadn't known the nature of his lordship's secret either, just that the address would provide the needed leverage. Adelan's own fears, and Vortane's reputation, had done the rest. That had been Alita's first and only glimpse beneath her master's veil, but it had been enough to tell her that being a shadow was nothing more than a confidence trick. She'd learned confidence tricks running with Roth's gang and gotten good at them. So how much more did Vortane really have to teach her? Presently, she realized that the line of cells wasn't straight, but curved like the rim of a wheel. They reached the end of a row and descended a wide stair. She had the sense of other cells passing to her left and right, row upon row, cloaked in musty darkness. Just how big was this place? You see, said Vortane, toying with his amulet, the clans have forgotten so much. There's a tendency to assume the past was, much as the present is. We see mechtrites serving drinks, or bearing gaudy palanquins, and consider ourselves fortunate to have been bequeathed such helpful mechanical slaves. It struck Alita that he was being unusually garrulous, the triumph of the moment overriding his natural caution. That was fine with her. 
Perhaps he did have one last thing to teach her, after all. So what are they really? What else did our ancestors leave for us? Their weapons. A squat, toroid console sat at a short distance from the foot of the stairs, its surface covered in a forest of switches. The console itself appeared to be paneled in a rich, dark wood. How it had survived the passing years, Alita couldn't begin to guess. In the center, accessed through a split in the console ring, was a chair. It was curiously ornate, made of black metal that looked almost like polished stone, the outer edges filigreed in silver. It seemed more like a throne than the command chair it presumably was. Fortain crossed to the console, his manner that of a child loose in a confectioner's. This is more than I'd hoped. The interface seems intact, and... He stabbed a finger down on the console. A thousand bright pinpricks burst into being high above, bathing the chamber in warm yellow light. Yes, yes, yes. It still has power after all this time. Incredible, simply incredible. I found one before, you know, on one of Singoria's moons. The chamber had collapsed, destroying almost everything. He set a synth flame torch aside and tapped absent-mindedly at his amulet. It was a waste, a terrible waste. For the first time, Alita was able to get a proper sense of the cavern's size. In the dark, she'd had no idea just how far they'd descended. Now, she saw the brass-framed hibernation cells rising above her like the tiered seats of a stadium, each ring contained by carlicued rails and tattered velvet drapes. There must have been hundreds of mectrites. A body could live a dozen lives of luxury just from the sale of what was in the chamber. If the mectrites were indeed weapons, as Vortain said, then their contribution to Clan Bellinosa's war effort would be incalculable. No wonder he was so glad to find them. Vortain busied himself prodding and poking the consoles, practically hopping from foot to foot with excitement. Vortain, destroyer of the rich and powerful, giddy as a child. Alita had never seen him this way. It was pathetic. Giving him wide berth, she'd slipped past the console to take a closer look at the chair. Close up, it looked even more like a throne. What with its high back and quilted seat, like everything else in the chamber, its creators had made the effort to conceal function with form, hiding its cabling within its rigid frame. She ran a finger along the edge of an armrest, brushing dust to the floor, and pictured someone sitting in the chair, issuing orders to subordinates laboring away at the console. Nice chair. Fortain didn't look up. If my research is correct, that's the command interface. It's the hub that sends the mechtrites their orders. They're capable of some limited self-awareness, of course, but they're really more of a hive. You mean, they obey whoever sits in that chair? That's the gist of it, certainly. The detail's a little more involved. He looked up as a sharp, clattering sound echoed down through the chamber, the kind of noise that might be made by a foot punting a loose piece of stone across the tunnel. There must be a way to close the door from the inside. Help me look, would you? Alita ignored him, unable to take her eyes off the chair. The plan was the plan. But this? Well, this was too good an opportunity to pass up. There was no point thinking about it. That would just give doubt time to grow. Taking a deep breath, she twisted around and sat down in the chair. Wait, what are we doing? Fortain shouted, Alita? The expression on his face was priceless, a mix of fear and betrayal. For once, she'd surprised him. That alone made it worthwhile. That alone. Alita felt a sudden spike of pain between her shoulder blades. Darkness clouded her vision. She awoke a heartbeat later, woken by a raw, agonized scream. Her scream. Panic welled up inside her. She tried to pull away, but her body wouldn't respond. A second spike followed, this one at the base of her skull. She managed to stay conscious this time, and felt metal scraping her spine. She screamed again. When the sound faded, the pain went with it, and she could move once more. Gasping for breath, Alita slumped forward. She didn't fall far. Something held her in position. Choking back a growing sense of revulsion, she reached up to her neck. Her probing fingers found a small metal disc fused to her flesh and a tangle of cables extending back into the throne. What had she done? Vortain watched her from a few paces away, his expression unreadable. I warned you before about your rashness, Alita. You should have listened. She ignored him. Even the memory of pain had faded now, and with it the worst of the revulsion. She felt dizzy, euphoric. Her vision fragmented, overlaid with a thousand glimmers of light. Alita blinked her eyes closed, but only the image of Vortain faded. She was left with a thousand not-quite-identical scenes of smeared glass and bright brass. The Mectrites. She was seeing through the Mectrites' eyes while they slumbered. It was more than that. She could feel their minds communicating with hers, the babble of voices like an ocean breaking across a shore. She focused on one pair in particular, and told it to awaken. In one of the scenes, the glass panel shattered as a brass hand crashed through it. Alita focused on another voice, and another, grinning. She sent the same command again, and again. She opened her eyes to see Vortain watching her thoughtfully, 
I don't suppose you're rousing the Mechtrites to help repel our intruders, are you? Alita laughed, elated to be in a position of power for once. Why would I? We go way back, Roth and me, from before I wasted three years with you. Four Mechtrites clanked down the steps and took a position behind Vortain, two seized the Shadow's arms and held him fast. Infuriatingly, he didn't seem at all concerned. The other two took up flanking positions behind her throne. You should know I'm very disappointed in you, he said. I guess I'll live with that. He watched her, a thoughtful expression on his face. Will you? Yes, I suppose you will. Alita scarcely heard him. She was too busy rousing other Mechtrites to wakefulness. Her gamble had worked out better than she could have expected. Not only had she denied Vortane control of the Mechtrites, she could now order them aboard Roth's transport, saving the considerable effort to carting them away. Through their eyes, she could see Roth and his lads making their way down through the tiers. There were twenty of them in all, far more than necessary, as things had turned out, but it had seemed prudent not to take any chances. One of the newcomers, startled by a Mechtrite, whipped up his pistol and started screaming incoherent threats. Alita suppressed a sigh and ordered the Mechtrite to freeze. She switched her calm to the frequency Roth was using. Calm down. I have them under control. And what about him, love? asked Roth, reaching the foot of the stairs. The sight of his pistol didn't waver from Vortane. Is he under control? Alita quashed a spark of irritation. Roth was easy on the eye, in a rough and rugged sort of way, but he'd never been that bright. On the other hand, he had connections. Connections that she'd need. Mechtrites weren't exactly something she could sell on a market corner. She scratched at the back of her scalp, trying to stop a sudden itch. It didn't help. Instead, the sensation grew worse. It felt like it was on the inside of her head, not the outside. Does he look under control? Roth opened his mouth to reply, but Vortane cut him off. Ah, Roth Terracon. Second-rate fence. Third-rate hired gun. Used to run with Bryden's gang. Until that unfortunate misunderstanding two years back. I suppose the idiots clinging around up above are the rest of your rabble? Mackin, Drost, etc., etc. Roth scowled. How did... Tell him nothing, said Alita. She'd seen Vortane try this before. Conversational ranging shots. Not intended to elicit information by themselves, but to identify weakness and resolve. She couldn't see how it would help him, but that didn't stop it from being annoying. In fact, I don't think we need to keep him alive any longer. What, kill him? asked Roth. But he's a shadow. That's trouble. Lawkeepers is one thing. I don't need the clan looking. Vortane raised an eyebrow. Oh, that's a compelling point, if made with questionable grammar. What do you think, Alita? Prepared to give it all up? Shut up, she snapped, and turned her attention to Roth. If we let him live to talk about what we've done, that's going to end better for us, is it? Sorry, Roth, said Vortane. I'm afraid she's not going for it. It looks like the lovely Alita is looking to leap a few rungs higher on the underworld ladder. He leaned close to Roth, or at least as close as he could, given that his arms were still pinned. Between you and me, I don't think it's going to work out. Alita glared at him. The itch at the back of her mind was getting stronger, making it hard to think. I said shut up. Roth, kill him. Roth looked from Vortane to Alita and back to Vortane again. He lowered his gun. No. No, I don't think so. You want him dead? You do it. Vortane nodded approvingly. Good choice, Roth. Cowardly, but with a hint of principle. If you leave this asteroid, you'll go far. Enough! Alita shouted. I'll do it. One of the Mechtrites left the side of her throne and advanced towards Vortane. You're not going to kill me. She laughed. Appealing to my better nature? Oh no. I've spent three years looking for that and found not a trace. Despite the search, Vortane's voice hardened. It's not an appeal or a prediction. It's an instruction. You're not going to kill me. We'll see about that. Focusing on the Mechtrite, Alita ordered it to snap its former master's neck. The command wouldn't form, the thought dissipating like mist even as it took shape. It was like having a word on the tip of her tongue, but a hundred times worse. Having trouble? asked Fortane. Alita tried to send the command to another Mechtrite, but again the order slipped from her mind before it was fully formed. The strange itch was getting worse like raw static aching across her brain. She screamed in frustration. What have you done to me? You did it to yourself. Let me go. No, she said. Nonetheless, the command coalesced at the back of her mind. The Mechtrites released their grip. Vortane took a step towards her, then stopped as Roth jammed the barrel of his pistol into the shadow's temple. What's going on? I don't know. Alita's mind was filled with a gabble of thoughts. She couldn't tell which belonged to her. Not anymore. The scene of Vortane and Roth seemed no more distinct than the images being relayed from the Mechtrite's eyes. For a moment, 
She forgot who she was. A surge of panic brought the memory floating to the surface. Alita Tiran. She was Alita Tiran, but that wasn't quite true, was it? She could feel another consciousness writhing around in her mind, cold and clear, where her awareness was growing increasingly hazy. Alita felt it probing at her memories, her feelings. I'm afraid Alita's not quite herself anymore, said Vortain, the sound seeming to come from far away. She's part of the interface now, a living, breathing component of the Mechtrite Hive. Their queen, I suppose you could say. He raised his amulet between finger and thumb and shook it gently from side to side. As the queen only obeys someone who has one of these. Give it here, shouted Roth. Give it here or I'll kill you. He ground the pistol into Vortain's temple, forcing him to tilt his head. The shadow sighed. I'm sorry, Roth, but you should have stayed a coward. There is no room for heroes in our little drama. Only the dead and the damned. He shifted his gaze and Alita felt his eyes boring into hers. Kill him. Kill them all. What? No, but the command was already sent. She saw Roth's finger tighten on the trigger. Then a Mechtrite clamped its brazen hand around his, the sound of cracking bone almost lost beneath his scream. The Mechtrite released him, and Roth collapsed to his knees, screaming and cradling his mangled hand. The Mechtrite reached down and clamped Roth's head in both hands. There was a sodden crack, and Roth's scream stopped. Desperate shouts rang out to take its place as the Mechtrites hunted the rest of Roth's gang amongst the hibernation cells. Alita saw it all through the Mechtrite's eyes. Every crushed skull, every snapped neck, every torn throat. Some of the gangers fought back, guns blazing as they pumped plasma bullets into their remorseless pursuers. Alita felt a flash of sympathetic pain with each impact. One Mechtrite went dark entirely, fading from her mind. Its destroyer had little time to celebrate his victory. Two more Mechtrites closed in from behind and tore him limb from limb. A small part of Alita shuddered at the gruesome scene. A larger alien part reveled in the satisfaction of a task well done. What is it doing to me? She breathed. Vortain glanced down in distaste and brushed a dribble of brain from his robes, replacing you with something more tractable. You see, the interface needs a human host to convey instructions to the rest of the hive. As I understand it, a Mechtrite's brain simply can't handle the strain of autonomy. That's why so many go mad. But a human mind can, once it's been adjusted. This was always your plan. Even the small effort to speak was almost beyond her, suffocated by the presence in her mind. Let's say rather that I gave you the opportunity to disappoint me. I would gladly have found someone else. For the first time, a hint of anger touched his expression. I'm a shadow, you stupid child. Did you really think a gutter rat like you can sneak behind my back without my knowing it? He shook his head. I thought you had potential. I wanted to raise you up. Give you an honorable cause that you could serve willingly. No matter. You'll still serve. And serve faithfully, won't you? Yes, said the new Mechtrite queen. Deep inside her mind, Alita screamed. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Matthews. Matthew. Well done, sir. A lovely, lovely story there. And Rob, what can I say? Big hugs there. Squire, a fantastic narration. Hope you enjoyed that story. Enjoyed it as well. So next up is the interview. And like I say, I did it with Ariva Rudkin, who writes for the New Scientist magazine. And just had this great idea, you know what I mean? Where do we, you know, store? I mean, how does the brain store words? You know, does it take certain groups of words and store them at a certain, you know, part of the brain like all like see the colors green red blue do they store on the left side do anger words go somewhere else and what does this mean you know basically for you know that old kind of cliche left hide left hand side of the brain right hand side of the brain now if you you wrote this you know this article and i, I found it fascinating because you you asked a great question you know how do we store words in our brain and it's something i've never even thought about did you set out what to write this article to actually discover how we do that um so yeah it's a totally fascinating question um and it was also something that i hadn't thought too much about um until we saw that this study was coming down the pike um but you know when i first started looking into it there's a lot of things i saw that we do kind of have a sense of you know we know uh that there are 
is a part of the brain that has a lot to do with how we produce language. There's a part that has a lot to do with how we comprehend it. Um, obviously, if you're hearing a word, there's, you know, the auditory cortex of your brain is involved. If you're speaking it, the motor cortex is involved. You know, we knew there are all these kind of different gears turning and parts that are going into it. But um, yeah, I, I also had no idea. And I was kind of fascinated to see how much scientists had done to sort of hack away at that question. Because you mentioned as well, neuroscientists, you know, they can already tell to some extent what, what a person's thinking. Do you know, how much can they in that area tell work? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a unnerving <laughs> idea. Um, so they've actually tried a few different things. Um, it's, they'll have people listen to these sentences and they'll, they'll see that the brain is lighting up in all different kinds of ways and that's happening. And they'll say, okay, we know that the person is hearing a J sound when the brain lights up in this way. It's hearing an S sound when the brain lights up in that way. And they'll be able to sort of like uh, reverse engineer, uh, you know, what are the parts of the brain that respond to different kinds of sounds. And then we can say, okay, so now we have a sense of what kind of sound is a person hearing? Um, you know, can we get a, can we try to recreate what's, uh, what they're hearing or what's going on from, from that information? Uh, another thing that scientists have tried to do is they know that when we uh, see things, we have different neurons that respond to different edges um, and different kinds of shapes. And so they've actually done studies where they'll show people pictures or they'll show them um, like little clips of videos. And then they'll say, you know, okay, we see that the, the, these edge neurons are responding in this way. Can we try to recreate a picture of what they're seeing? Um, and they had some sort of, you know, it's not like exact, but some sort of like kind of blurry success in trying to kind of recreate what they know it is that the person is hearing or seeing. Um, so it's kind of amazing. I like as well that you actually say, you know, digging into this kind of area that, you know, the brain's filing system, that is, you know, we are a little bit kind of unsure and things are, you know, in your words, a little murky in that um, in that department. Do you know, and like I say, it's something I never even thought about. You know, how does the brain store the words? Yeah, we can sometimes replicate, you know, things with the brain, but it's this filing system. Why do you think that is a little bit murkier, for one for a better description? <laughs> Well, um, you know, one reason it's murky is that sometimes these studies can be tough to do. So the study I mentioned earlier that use, that relies on electrodes being in people's brains, that's incredibly invasive. And generally, most people aren't walking around with that kind of hardware uh, stuck into their brain. So, you know, you're limiting what you can do. Um, a lot of times also these studies are done on really small groups of people. And so we might be able to say, OK, we have a sense of how, you know, Joe Smith how his brain might respond. But we don't know, is this the same as everyone's brain? Um, it's not. It's when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's not totally clear, you know, and another issue is just that, you know, you do these studies in the lab, you can really, um, 
you know, it's really kind of, you can really be really controlled about what people are experiencing and what they're doing, but, you know, could it be trickier, you know, if you're not in a situation um, that's like a lab? You know, actually, there was one study they did where they had people play Counter-Strike and they tried to see if can they figure out, are people going to move left or right? You know, what are they going to do next? But they found for the most part, people are so amped up and emotional while they're playing that that sort of drowned out all the other kinds of signals they were looking for. Um, and it made it tough to do. You mentioned Jack Gillard and is a team. I mean, who who's Jack Gillard and what have they achieved? So Jack Gallant, uh, he's one of the kind of pioneers in this field. And he's at the University of California, Berkeley. And he's done a bunch of studies. Um, he's done a lot of these things that I mentioned that rely on kind of uh, looking at pictures and movies. Um, so in this instance, he and his team said, you know, okay, we've done... People have done studies where maybe they have a very specific list of words or a very specific set of pictures that people are looking at sort of in isolation. You know, what would it be like if we tried to see what happens when people are listening to, you know, full stories um, that are more natural and more like, you know, the way that we most of the time when you're walking down the street or talking to people, you're not just kind of hearing different disparate sets of words in isolation. You're hearing them, you know, in this interconnected weave together narrative. So they said, let's see if we have, if we can track people while they're listening to these sort of natural narratives and see if we can build something that's more exhaustive. Um, The way that they describe it is sort of an atlas of the words in the brain. Um, You know, what does the whole picture look like? You know, can we get a sense of maybe not exactly what all the terrain is like on that map and, you know, where everything is located, but how it's laid out and, um, you know, where it might make sense to, to look more closely for more clues. And have they had a great response with this, or, you know, great success with this? Yeah, they were able to build an incredible map, um, and they were, they were able to have a lot of success in sort of laying out that first framework for um, what does it look like, what might it look like in perhaps a lot of people as opposed to one person, what might it look like in a, in a natural way as opposed to just sort of a, a lab-type setting. It's what I kind of really find fascinating is, is, you know, are we really storing certain words in certain different parts of the brain? You know, like, say, aggressive words in one part, you know, artistic descriptive words. And is that really the case? <laughs> um, so it's it, it is and it isn't. Um, <laughs> what's important What's important to know is it's not like, um, you know, it's not like that you have buckets in your brain and, you know, all the animals go in over here and all the colors go over there and, you know, all your family is here and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, when, when Gal and his team were doing this, they had seven people, they were hooked up in this fMRI machine. Um, and what the machine is doing is it's tracking the way that blood is flowing in the brain and it's tracking the oxygen levels. Um, and that's kind of a good uh, sort of proxy uh, for where is the most activity going on at a given moment. They had people actually listen uh, to podcasts. Um, oh, I pity them. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are talking about a podcast, so it's a, it's a circle of life. Um, but they, they listen to these podcasts um, and, you know, I think several hours. Um, and they tracked basically where all these different little, they sort of look at the brain as on a huge grid with thousands of little tiny points. What's happening in each of those, you know, thousands of points. Um, and then meanwhile, they did an analysis on all the different types of words that were in the stories. And they said, okay, we could get a sense that there's some very clear categories here. So there's number words like four, there's violent words, uh, there's professional words or social words, emotional words. Um, you know, can we see which of these little tiny points on the grid is responding to each one of these given words? Um, and they did find that, you know, maybe one of these tiny pinpoints would respond really strongly to words that described people, or maybe another one would just respond really strongly to words that describe time. Um, but these are all kind of, uh, when you look at the, the picture, they're all kind of lighting up in different kinds of patterns in response to, to different words. Um, you know, the way one researcher described it to me was, you know, think of a word like, uh, like table. Um, you know, okay, it could be, you could think of it as something that goes in a home. You could think of it as something that's made of wood. 
Maybe you're thinking of a particular table in your house that's painted blue. You know, maybe you're thinking of your mother's table. And so she's coming into mind. You know, so one word can kind of inspire, could maybe span a few different categories and maybe inspire, you know, uh, an array of different uh, pinpoints in the brain or what scientists call voxels to, to respond in this way. Um, so that's, that, that's one thing that's going on. Another thing that, that's going on is, you know, it's not, uh, is that, you know, let's say you have one that responds to numbers. Okay. So maybe it responds to the number five, maybe it responds to the number like 16 million. Um, and so it's not clear, you know, that there's a distinct difference between the two of those, or maybe one, you know, pinpoint responds to several different types of words. So actually, you know, I was going through the map before our call and they had one, that responded to the word pregnant, but also the word murders. Um, so kind of related, maybe sounds like a short story prompt or something, um, but not, you know, kind of a clear distinction uh, between what the difference might be between the two. But is this in a way then just wiping away what's gone before? You know, because, you know, I was brought up to think, you know, like your left side of your brain is, is language, you know, the right side is your artistic. Does, is that just an urban myth now then? Is, you know, it, was that never real in the first place? <laughs> um, you know, in, in, some, in some ways, you know, people like that idea and you like the people like the sort of idea of having, you know, it's almost like uh, there's something like, you know, a clear binary like that, that's sort of driving your life. And certainly scientists um, who study the brain have understood for a long time that, you know, there are certain uh, areas focused on language that are on the left side. Um, and for most people, that tends to be the dominant side um, that's responding to language. Um, but the studies like this one and, and some studies that have come in the past have suggested, you know, it's, it's, it, it can be more complicated than just everything's over here, everything's over there. You know, you're hearing a word, you know, maybe if you're, if you're vocalizing it, if you're reading it, um, if you have maybe some voxels on the other side that respond to certain qualities of that brain, you know, it, it's, it, there's a big, big picture um, that kind of goes beyond the sort of black and white, yin and yang, left and right uh, vision. Um, that some people have. Now, Eva, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but what do you think we could do with this data then? You know, if, if we're kind of mapping everything and everything's, you know, in a kind of certain place, is it is it just whimsical data or could it be used for great research? Um, so Gala and his team have some really interesting ideas, um, and I'll put it on them to, to come up with those kinds of ideas <laughs> for what could happen in the future with this kind of thing. So, um one idea is that, you know, let's say you have people with a, a serious uh, issue, a serious medical issue that makes it difficult for them to communicate like ALS, um, like locked-in syndrome. Uh, could we use a map like this to maybe, um, what, you know, track their brain as we're communicating with them and then get a better idea of, you know, what they would like to communicate back, um, which is... Uh, it would be an, an amazing tool. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, other people have discussed, um, you, you know, the, the, it kind of brings to mind, uh, you know, sort of more, you know, futuristic, you know, can we do this in court? Could, you know, what if the, you know, could the government do this to, you know, track, you know, is did someone, you know, commit a crime or not? You know, that's a little... Um, it's it's certainly far out, uh, but you know it, it's an it's an interesting idea of you know what happens if this technology you know got that good and uh, you know what could happen next. I mean, it's not that far of a leap then to start thinking you know through this technology you could start reading people's minds. Do you think? Um, you know, I think we're we still have uh, some time before that really happens. You know, one one issue is that um, you know this was a, you know, still a pretty small group of people and they were all English speakers, educated. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot more to figure out to a lot more kind of, uh, data to be collected to figure out, you know, um, does this actually, does everyone have the same kind of map in their mind? You know, does everyone's brain respond in the same way to certain kinds of words? Um, and certainly, uh, it could be hard to know, you know, Maybe we'll have a, can we have a sense that someone's thinking of a number, but not specifically this number, or someone's thinking of an emotional word, but what emotion is it? You know, will we be able to untangle that? Um, 
I don't know. Uh, but certainly I think that, you know, we're really with a lot of brain studies really at the, the beginning of what we're, we're beginning to understand about how the brain works and, and what we can do to sort of peer inside. So it's going to be really interesting to watch. Is, is Gallard planning any more research in this area then? Um, you know, he's kind of one of, uh, like I said, he's one of the people on the forefront of these kinds of studies. So, you know, I'm sure we'll be seeing more from him in years to come. You think the brain's such a, like an off-limit area, you know, but it seems like we're, we're delving in there and just pulling it to bits and getting all its secrets out, you know, laid bare. You know, um, you know, some people have already started to try to think about, you know, what could we is there, are there applications that we could already use for these kinds of studies? And there've been, you know, kind of a, a scattered group of, of companies that have tried to look into, you know, could you use MRI or EEG to do lie detection? Um, could you use these kinds of brain scanning tools to do market research and see what you're likely to buy? Um, and, you know, there's still kind of, uh, you know, I'm not sure how accurate those kinds of uh, approaches are, but certainly it's drawn the attention of, um, you know, there have been people in the legal field and people who are ethicists who have started to ask some of the questions, you know, before this technology even really arrives in sort of crazy futuristic way we imagine it, what would be the right way to, to use it and, and how can we sort of maybe lay the groundwork uh, so that we'll know what to do when, when it's here. I hope the market research lot don't tap into it. That's the last <laughs> thing you want. Aviva, it's been lovely having you on. Thank you so much for, like I say, coming on. Just give me like a little glimpse into this kind of into this world in this area. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. There you go, Aviva. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you. Well, I had a, I had a fab time. Thank you. So we're going to play now, you know, if that's if okay with you. It's a little teaser, so we haven't got the end of the story. You know, obviously we want you to kind of go out there and get it. And there's links on the website there for the Audible for the UK and the the American. I'm not sure if it's up there in, in Australia or anywhere else around the world, but I've been sent those two links. So pop over and, you know, treat yourself to a copy. Now, I'm not going to give anything away. Just have a listen See what you think, and would would you go out? You know, I would, I would be interested to find out if you would kind of go and get this story. Do you know what I mean? So, just have a listen and see what you think. He was at the window again. Mikkel sighed, his frail shoulders barely moving with the effort, and studied the outline that stood in the broken frame. Up this high in the mountains, the wind whipped harshly through the opening filling the large chamber with the chill threat of winter hovering in the icy crags that cast ominous shadows upon the manor grounds. The figure seemed a statue, every muscle carved with nearly mathematical precision. He was da Vinci's ideal, with only one glaring difference. It was this deviation that gave lie to his stillness, the copper wings that adorned his back flexing slightly, almost as if echoing the subtle beat of his heart. The movement was so minute as to be nearly unnoticeable, but Mikkel knew it was there, as it always was, just like the metal endoskeleton that lay sheathed within the casing of nanite-fueled flesh. The small robotic particles flowing through what passed for his blood painted his skin with a slight copper tinge, giving him the look of one who paid homage to the sun. "'Come away from the window, Icarus,' Mikkel chided gently, "'and help me prepare for bed.' My designation is one KRV-5. But it is not your name. Icarus looked over his shoulder at Mikkel, his expression unreadable as always. His wings gave another quiver, the copper plates that served as his feathers fluttering in the wind that forced its way between the intricately hammered panels. The slight movement brought with it the ghost of an intricate melody, the noise of the feathers brushing against each other creating a gentle accompaniment to Icarus's every motion. It was the sound of angels on high, Mikkel was sure, and he silently cursed his own delusions, his heart growing a little heavier at the sight. It was as if the instinct to fly had been soldered into those wings, 
as if even the metallic imitation of feather and sinew and bone knew what it had been modelled upon, and ached to fulfil that promise. The wind called his name, and Icarus was unable to answer. Mikel had designed something beautiful, of that there was no doubt. Every muscle moved in synchronicity with its fellows, the flesh compact enough to keep everything in its proper place. But despite the organic components that gave Icarus his supposed humanity, he was above all else a creature of metal. What wasn't bolted and hinged together was soldered into place beneath that sublime sheathing of flesh. He weighed more than those delicate copper wings could lift, his metal skeleton the only thing capable of bearing the majority of the weight. "'Come away from the window, dear one,' Mikhail urged him again. "'It is time for bed.' Another gust wrapped round them both, making the metal plates of Icarus's feathers rattle softly against each other once more. Icarus gave one last longing look out the broken window, muscles tensing as if he just might take that final step, before turning to proceed Mikel down the stairs. Mikel shivered in the gust and made a mental note to make repairs on this floor a priority before something happened again. He couldn't lose his angel, not after everything he had gone through to get him. That great emptiness outside called to him, even as Icarus lay in repose every night, waiting for morning to break so that he would have something else to do to occupy his time, he could hear it whispering his name. Sometimes it sounded like the light trills of the songbirds that lit in the trees lining the garden walls during the seeping warmth of the afternoon. At others it sounded sleepy, as if exhausted by the effort it took to stretch so far out of sight encapsulated within the lowing echo of an owl that resonated within his ribcage. Then there was the sharp screech of the raptors that slashed at his brainstem, as if that great expanse of sky were angry at his failure to answer. Icarus wanted to step out into that openness, to allow it to embrace him in the welcome it offered with every teasing glimpse through the windows. But it was his creator who held him back. His maker told him no, and he listened as he was told he should. Once, in those earliest days, Icarus had ignored the directives placed upon him and made his bid for freedom in the open sky. He had been proven wrong in his presumption. God, that one in the sky that the stable hand sometimes talked about, or his maker, the one that created him, had deemed him unworthy of the one thing that was his due. Icarus was not altogether sure which of the two he should blame. Perhaps it was a punishment. That was what the stories the stable hands shared seemed to indicate. That their god punished the wicked for even minor wrongdoings, and rewarded only those who were the most loyal. Icarus was not familiar with their god, only his own, and he did not know of anything he had done to deserve the ire of his maker. Icarus was what he had been made to be, and maybe one day he would be able to answer that call. These lands had belonged to Mikel's family for generations, back to a time when nobles had owned everything within sight of their tall towers, from the old growth forests to the small villages that had clustered around the base of their walls seeking protection and security from both outsiders and the harsh climate found up here in the high mountain ranges. The solid walls of pine trees surrounding them kept the taint of the city out of their small enclave, protected them, but it also kept them isolated dependent only upon each other. Although the outdated rituals of fealty had long since fallen into disuse in the warmer realms closer to the city, the reclusive climes and intensive solitude of the mountains had encouraged the traditions to continue in somewhat diluted fashion. It was an exchange of sorts that worked for both sides. The continued loyalty of the villagers was rewarded with all the benefits the manor had to offer. There was always a warm hearth or extra supplies available during the harsh winters for those from the village who might need it. Jobs were available in and around the manor house, and loans were always available. They were a family of sorts, and all whose blood sang with the call of the mountains were kin. By modern law, Mikel might no longer be king of the castle, but he still was allotted the respect due to him as lord of the local manor. It was as if the cold kept things static up here in the high ranges, a moment frozen in time, just like those glass globes his parents had used to gift Mikel with after their travels. 
Despite the ties that bound them, Mikkel had no peers within the community, none he could call his friends. The people were loyal, subservient and practically invisible. His illness had kept him bedridden for large portions of his childhood, so no untoward fraternisation had ever had a chance to develop with the local youths. Even when he returned as an adult after years of schooling and being out in a world where such distinctions did not have quite the same potency, none would dare cross the barrier that remained in their bloodlines. As a young boy left to his own devices, Mikkel would often look out that broken upper window and watch the larger birds winging through the open sky. The raptors that lived in the higher crags would dance on the icy gusts that blew through the ranges black crescents slicing through the sunlit sky. He observed them as they hunted the smaller creatures that tried to hide amongst the low growth of the forests, the rabbits and lesser birds that served as their prey. Even from his sickbed he could see them if he craned his neck just right, the soaring shapes his only company during his long periods of recuperation. They were beautiful and fierce and free, able to do so much with so little so unlike him. It was those lonely, pain-filled days in which the idea of his Icarus had been conceived. He found comfort in the quiet. At first even the murmurs of the few human servants startled him, hurting his delicate ears and even the slightest light had made him cringe away in pain. After his maker had realised and reset Icarus's senses, some of the discomfort had gone away but it still took time to adjust to the noise of the humans nearby. Icarus suspected his maker felt much the same, which is why there were so few servants on the grounds, and even fewer as each year passed. It was something he felt he shared with his maker, the need for quiet, even in this sea of solitude that had been carved out amongst the forests that hid them so thoroughly. Icarus had never seen a stranger here within his limited years, having memorised a few villagers who maintained his maker's residence. He knew there were more people out there, in the cities he read of and his maker sometimes spoke of when caught off guard. He had broken the rules and gone past the manor gates a few times to observe the villages located nearby. He had been careful to remain out of sight, but he had needed to see, to understand, to know what these humans were like. What he saw only confused him more for they were nothing like his maker. They were loud, boisterous things, so odorous and unpleasant when they came in from the fields in the evening. He did not think he would like to live amongst them, no matter his maker's worries. Icarus felt more comfortable when left to his own devices, without anyone around to take up some of the space he so valued. Though he found he did not mind his maker's presence nearly as much as time passed, his maker had learned how to be one with the silence, and Icarus appreciated the skill. Mikkel felt his heart stumble in its rhythm, something that was happening all too often of late. He rolled away from Icarus's weight and reached for the bottle of pills on the nightstand, placing several under his tongue. Mikkel waited a few seconds for the medication to fully dissolve, swallowing away the bitter aftertaste and wishing it tasted as sweet as his Icarus. Are you satisfactory? Icarus asked. Mikkel remained quiet for a few moments longer, giving the medication a little more time to do what it could. While his boy was beautifully conceived and designed, the only flaw lay in his programming. There was no way to bypass the strictures of coded response, even with the organic base. Mikkel could only hope that Icarus's capacity for empathy would grow over time. Icarus was his first organic humanoid creation, perfectly flawed as he was, so maybe the error lay within Mikkel. I am well, my dear. Thank you for asking. Icarus pressed against his back, his heavy cock branding a hot line against the sensitive flesh of Mikkel's buttocks. Mikkel couldn't help the small shudder of renewed arousal that spilled through him, even as it made his heart twinge once more. You are lying, Icarus declared though his voice held no remonstrance. "'It is not polite to point out another's imperfections, Icarus,' Mikkel reminded him. "'We have discussed this before. You made me. Any errors in construction are your doing.' Mikkel knew where this was going, where this conversation always went. 
After so long, he was not altogether sure it was entirely without malice, wondering if Icarus had developed some of the more bitter emotions since his creation. More often, he wondered if it were just guilt that made him think so. Mikkel rolled to face Icarus, resting his hand over where the small pump pushed the nano-blood through Icarus's system, fueling the organic components. He found comfort in its repetitive rhythm, the steady thub-dub that soothed him better than any lullaby ever could. Not tonight, my love. I need to head into town for a few days to procure supplies. Let us not part on such terms. May I come with you? No, Mikkel said softly, kneading the flesh beneath his fingers. You must stay to take care of things. Quite a few of the pets need repair. Mikkel's voice dropped into huskiness, the medication dulling his discomfort and allowing his arousal to surge. I need to be cared for as well. Icarus swelled forward, pressing his mouth to Mikkel's. Mikkel delighted in the touch, the slightly sweet aftertaste suffusing Icarus's saliva giving Mikkel a narcotic boost as it continued to absorb into his bloodstream. Mikkel found it ironic that while Icarus remained steadfastly reserved in all forms of verbal communication, as if the programming was taking longer to weave itself into the organic circuitry of his brain, that Icarus managed to excel at the physical. Every touch and every push and every thrust was perfection, making even Mikkel's ailing body sing with pleasure. And as Icarus rolled rhythmically inside him, his wings unfurling in a metallic canopy overhead. The virginal moon peeked coyly at Mikkel between the stretched expanse of Icarus's wings before they clenched to shield her view of him once more. His maker seemed imperfect for a god. While he fit the parameters of male beauty in the classical fashion, blonde hair, blue eyes and a mathematically balanced shape, his physique appeared thinner and his skin more pallid than typically desired according to the literature he had found buried underneath the linens in the maids' quarters. Icarus knew his own form had been designed to be better than average. He was taller than even the tallest stable hand and his musculature was firmer than most. Even his skin tone had a blush of health, the fluids that fueled him giving him an even sun-kissed glow that edged slightly toward the metallic unlike the ruddy cheeks and wind-chapped skin of the workers. When he was lying next to the thin form of his maker, he would compare their flesh tones. His maker so pale, with undertones of grey and blue, whereas his own was gold and glowing. Icarus felt he looked the more alive of the two, but he knew there was something wrong with his maker's insides, something his maker, or even that infamous god, could not fix. They were both broken in some manner. Icarus had realised this not long after his first aborted attempt at flight. Icarus could not meet the demands the sky made of him, and his maker could not meet the demands of his own body. With every breath and every beat of his heart, his maker was one step closer to his end. Icarus knew of death. He had read of it in his maker's library and had seen the limp animals when they came from the slaughterhouse, only to end up on their plates by dinner-time. Death meant that one's parts were no longer in working order. Icarus's pump had stopped once. That time he had flung himself from the upper window into the sky that had so soundly rejected him. Just as that mechanical pump pushed the nanofluids through Icarus's body... The organic one within his maker pushed his blood through his limbs and kept his maker moving. Once that pump stopped beating, that was death. His maker had made Icarus's pump beat again, and Icarus wondered why his maker could not replace his own faulty pump with one such as Icarus housed within his chest. His maker had said it would not work, that his body would reject such a foreign implant. Icarus found this ridiculous. These carbon-based creatures seemed to be such a flawed design. But at least it gave him a purpose. His maker could not care for himself, so it was within Icarus's design to do so. His maker had made him as a companion, and Icarus would fulfil his duty. Then, perhaps, he might earn what he desired most. As the books said, the loyal were rewarded with paradise. <laughs>
There you go. Has that pipped your interest? Do you think, you know, you're going to shell out a little little bit of little shekels there to, to kind of find out the ending? By S. Zane, 1KRV5, narrated by Nicholas Cam. Again, links are on to pop over to Audible. So that is Starship Sova. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, we're going to be doing a month of stories that were wrote in a different language to the UK English. Yes. I'm really looking forward to it, to be quite honest. It's just fantastic. You know, to have stories, you, you know, man, just excited, excited. Russian, Chinese, Japanese and French. Looking forward to that over the next month. Big thank you to Jeremy for pulling this off as well. So, until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.